This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed, one hour of mystery and crime brought to you every Wednesday by RelicRadio.com. If you'd like to help support this and all of the Relic Radio podcasts, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Your support is how this show keeps coming to you every week. My thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Our first story this week comes from Sherlock Holmes. It's The Blanched Soldier from August 4th, 1959. After that, it's The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and The Deep Shadow, his story from March 21st, 1950. From London, we present The Blanched Soldier, a play for radio by Michael Hardwick, based on the short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The Blanched Soldier. For a long time, my friend Watson has worried me to write down an experience of my own. I have often had occasion to point out to him how superficial are his own accounts and to accuse him of pandering to popular taste instead of confining himself rigidly to facts and figures. Try it yourself, Holmes, he's retorted. And, yes, I'm compelled to admit, I do begin to realize that the matter must be presented in an interesting way. I find from my notebook that it was just at that time, uh, January 1903, soon after the conclusion of the Boer War, that I had a visit from a certain Mr. James M. Dodd. It is my habit to sit with my back to the window and to place my visitors in the opposite chair where the light falls full upon them. Mr. James M. Dodd seemed somewhat at a loss how to begin the interview, so I gave him some of my conclusions. From South Africa, sir, I perceive. Why, yes, sir. Imperial Yeomanry, I fancy. Exactly. The Middlesex, no doubt. Mr. Holmes, you are a wizard. When a gentleman of virile appearance enters my room with such a tan upon his face as an English son could never give, and with his handkerchief in his sleeve instead of in his pocket, it is not difficult to place him. You wear a short beard, which shows that you were not a regular. You have the cut of a riding man. As to Middlesex, your card has already shown me that you are a stockbroker from Frogmorton Street. What other regiment could you have joined? <laughs> you see everything. I see no more than you, but I have trained myself to notice what I see. However, Mr. Dodd, it was not to discuss the science of observation that you called upon me this morning. What has been happening at Tuxbury Old Park? Mr. Holmes, I... How? My dear sir, there is no mystery. Your letter came with that heading. As you fixed this appointment in very pressing terms, it was clear that something sudden and important had occurred during your visit there. Yes, indeed. But a good deal has happened since that letter was written. If Colonel Emsworth hadn't kicked me out, I... Kicked you out? Perhaps, Mr. Dodd, you'll explain what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I, I got into the way of supposing that you knew everything without being told. But I will give you the facts, and I hope you'll be able to tell me what they mean. Then trade proceed. Colonel Emsworth was the Crimean VC, you know. Oh, yes, yes. Well, when I joined up in 1901, young Godfrey, his only son... Joined the same squadron. Well, we formed the kind of friendship you can only make when you both live the same life and share the same joys and sorrows. We took the rough and the smooth together through a year of fighting. Then, outside Pretoria, he was wounded in the shoulder. I got one letter from the hospital at Cape Town, 
and one from Southampton. Since then, not a word. Not one word, Mr. Holmes, for six months or more. And he was my closest pal. And what then? When the war was over and we all got back, I wrote to his father and asked where Godfrey was. No answer. I waited a bit and wrote again. This time I had a reply, short and gruff. Godfrey had gone on a voyage round the world, and it wasn't likely that he'd be back for a year. Oh, Mr. Holmes, I wasn't satisfied. The whole thing seemed so damned unnatural. It wasn't like him to drop a pal in such a manner. What did you do? Well, my own affairs took quite a time to straighten out, so I haven't been able to do anything about it till this week. My first move was to go down to his home, Tuxbury Old Park. I had to walk five miles from the station, and it was nearly dark when I got there. But at any rate, when I told the old butler my business, he went away and then came back and showed me straight into Colonel Emsworth's study. Well, sir, I should be interested to know the reasons for this visit. I explained to you in my letter, sir. I knew Godfrey in Africa. Yes, yes, I know that. Of course, we've only your word for it. Oh, I have his letters to me in my pocket. Kindly let me see them. Hmm. We were the closest of friends, sir. Is it not natural that I should wonder at his sudden silence and wish to know what has become of him? I have some recollection, sir, that I had already explained that in replying to your letters. He's gone upon a voyage round the world. His health was in a poor way after his African experiences, and I was of the opinion that complete rest and change were needed. Kindly pass that explanation on to any other friends who may be interested in the matter. Certainly. But perhaps you would have the goodness to let me have the name of the steamer and the shipping line. I have no doubt I shall be able to get a letter through to him. Many people, Mr. Dodd, would take offense at your infernal pertinacity. They would consider this insistence to have reached the point of damned impudence. And you must put it down to my real love for your son. Mr. Dodd, I have already made every allowance upon that score. I must ask you, however, to drop these inquiries. But why, sir? Every family has its own inner knowledge and its own motives. They can't always be made clear to outsiders, however well-intentioned. I would ask you to let the present and the future alone. And now, sir, you have come a long way, and you are welcome to stay the night here. My butler, Ralph, will see to your needs. We dine at eight o'clock. Come in. You beg pardon, sir. I just brought you some more coals. Bitter cold it is, sir. Oh, thank you, Ralph. There, sir. Now, sir, will there be anything more tonight? Uh, no, Ralph, that's all, thanks. Oh, before you go, there's just one thing. Sir? Um, you've been in service here for a long time, I suppose. Oh, yes, sir. Me and the missus both. And you've known Master Godfrey for many years. Lord bless you, sir, my missus nursed him. You could say, in a manner of speaking, I'm his foster father. Really? Well, I can tell you, you'd both been very proud to see him in South Africa. He bore himself well, sir, I understand. No braver man in the regiment. He pulled me out once from under the Boers' rifles. Or maybe I shouldn't be here now. Yes, sir, yes, that's Master Godfrey. Courage, sir. Why, there's not a tree in this park he hasn't climbed. Nothing would stop him. He was a fine boy, all right. And he was a fine man, sir. Was? You say he was? Look here. What is all this mystery about? What has become of Godfrey Emsworth? I, I don't know what you mean, sir. Ask the master about Master Godfrey. It's not for me to interfere. <laughs> Let go of me, please, sir. Now, listen to me, Ralph. You're going to answer one question before you leave this room if I have to hold you all night. Is Godfrey Emsworth dead? I wish he was, sir. 
I wish to God he was. Well, after that, there seemed to be only one interpretation, Mr. Holmes. My poor friend had evidently become involved in something criminal, or at the least something disreputable that had touched the family honor. His stern old father had sent me away for fear of some scandal coming to light. Well, that was what I thought just then. Your problem presents some very unusual features, Mr. Dodd. Pray continue. Well, after the butler had gone, I must have stood there pondering all this for some time. Then something made me look up. And there was Godfrey Emsworth. In the room? No, he was outside the window. It was a ground floor room. I'd left the curtains open. And there he was, looking at me through the glass. He was deadly pale. I've never seen a man so white. I reckon ghosts may look like that. But his eyes met mine, and they were the eyes of a living man. Did he give any sign? When he saw me looking at him, he sprang back into the darkness. Mr. Holmes, there was something shocking about that man. It wasn't just that ghastly face. It was something, something slinking and furtive, something guilty. It left a feeling of, of horror in my mind. I assume, however, that when a man has been soldiering a year or two with Brother Boers, his playmate, he keeps his nerve and acts quickly. Exactly. And Godfrey had hardly vanished before I was out of that window. I ran down the garden path and the way I thought he might have gone. It seemed to me that something was moving ahead of me. I called his name. But it was no use. When I got to the end of the path, there were several others branching in different directions to some outhouses. But as I stood there hesitating, I distinctly heard the sound of a closing door. It wasn't behind me in the house. It was somewhere ahead in the darkness. I knew then, Mr. Holmes, that what I'd seen was no vision. Well then, Mr. Dodd, what else did you do? There was nothing more I could do. I, I spent an uneasy night trying to find some theory to cover the facts. The next day, I found the Colonel rather more conciliatory. His wife remarked that there were some places of interest in the neighborhood, and I saw an opening to ask whether I might stay there one more night. Somewhat grudgingly, he agreed. Which gave you a clear day in which to make your observations. Yes. I felt I must explore the garden and see what I could find. There were several small outhouses, but at the end of the garden there was a detached building of some size. It was heavily curtained. I wondered if this could have been the place the sound of that shutting door had come from. I approached in a careless fashion, strolling aimlessly, and as I did so, a small bearded man in a black coat and a bowler hat came out of the door. He locked it after him. Then he looked at me with some surprise. Good day, sir. Good day. Are you... are you a visitor here? Yes, I am. My name is Dodd, James M. Dodd. I see. I'm an old army chum of Mr. Godfrey Emsworth's. I came hoping to see him. What a pity that he should be away on his travels. He would have been pleased to see you, no doubt, Mr. Dodd. His travels? Exactly. Well, good day to you, sir. No doubt you will resume your visit at some more propitious time. Good day, sir. He passed on. But when I turned, I observed that he was standing watching me, half concealed by some laurels at the far end of the garden. So I strolled back to the house and waited for night. As soon as everyone had retired and everything was dark and quiet, I slipped out of my window and made my way as silently as possible to the mysterious lodge. The curtains were still drawn, but now there were shutters up as well. Even so, there was some light coming through at one place. I found I could see inside the room. I saw the little man I'd seen that morning. He was smoking a pipe and reading a paper. I tried to see more of the room, but just then... So you've become a spy, have you? Oh, Hemsworth, kindly follow me back to the house, sir. 
There is a train to London at 8.30 in the morning. Sir, if I may only... The matter will not bear discussion. You've made a most damnable intrusion into the privacy of our family. You were here as a guest, and you've become a spy. I've nothing more to say, sir, save that I have no wish ever to see you again. Very well, Colonel Emsworth. Only I've seen your son, and I'm convinced that for some reason of your own, you are concealing him from the world. I have no idea what your motives are in cutting him off in this fashion, but I'm sure he's no longer a free agent. And I What's warn you, Colonel, that until I'm assured of the safety of the well-being of my friend, I shall never desist in my efforts to get to the bottom of this mystery. <laughs> However, he didn't attack me, Mr. Holmes. But there was nothing for it but to take the appointed train, after writing first, to ask you to see me. Mr. Dodd, the servants... Now, how many were there in the house? Well, to the best of my belief, there were only the old butler and his wife. The family seemed to live in the simplest fashion. There was no servant then in the detached house? None. Unless the little man with the beard acted as such. He seemed to be quite a superior person. You mentioned seeing him sitting by the fire reading a paper. What paper was it? Well, can that matter? It could be most essential. I really took no notice. Uh, possibly you observed whether it was a broadleaf paper... Or of that smaller type which one associates with weeklies? Since you mention it, it wasn't very large. Very well. Now, had you any indication that food was conveyed from the one house to the other? Well, I did see old Ralph carrying a basket down the garden walk and going in the direction of this house. Did you make any local inquiries? Yes, I did. I spoke to the station master and the innkeeper. I simply asked if they knew anything of my old comrade, Godfrey Emsworth. Both of them assured me that he'd gone for a voyage around the world. You said nothing of your suspicions? Nothing. Yet you said that you had seen your friend's face quite clearly at the window. So clearly that you're sure of his identity? I have no doubt about it, whatever. The lamplight shone full upon him. It couldn't have been someone resembling No, 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 no. It was he. But you say he was changed. Only in color. His face was... How shall I describe it? It was a, of a fish-belly whiteness. It was bleached. In patches? Well, it was his brow that I saw so clear. It, it was pressed against the window. Very well, Mr. Dodd. The matter should certainly be inquired into. I will go back with you to Tuxbury Old Park. Today? Oh, as it happens, I'm clearing up another matter at the moment. Let us say the beginning of next week. I shall be ready whenever you are, Mr. Holmes. Oh, I shall also ask an old friend of mine to accompany us. It is possible that his presence may be entirely unnecessary... On the other hand, it may be essential. The narratives of my friend Watson have shown, no doubt, that I do not waste words or disclose my thoughts while a case is under consideration. In fact, my case was practically complete. When we arrived at the strange old rambling house, I asked the elderly friend who'd accompanied us to remain in the carriage unless we should summon him. I had not introduced him to Dodd, who seemed surprised but asked no questions. The old butler, Ralph, opened the door to us. He wore the conventional costume of black coat and pepper and salt trousers with only one curious variant. He had on brown leather gloves. He shuffled them off at the sight of us, laying them down on the hall table. I have, as Watson may sometimes have remarked, an abnormally acute set of senses, and a faint but incisive smell was apparent. I contrived to drop my hat to the floor, and in picking it up, brought my nose within a foot of the gloves. A curious, tarry odor was oozing from them. My case was complete at last. 
beg pardon, sir. Mr. Dodd and Mr. Sherlock Holmes to see you, sir. Well, who the devil told you to do? What is the meaning of this? You, sir. Have I not told you, you infernal busybody, never to dare show your damned face here again? If you choose to enter here without my leave, I shall be within my rights if I use violence. As to you, Mr. Holmes, I extend the same warning to you. I am familiar with your ignoble profession. Ralph, telephone at once to the county police. Ask the inspector to send up two constables. Yes, sir. Tell him, uh, tell him that there are burglars in the house. One moment. You must be aware, Mr. Dodd, that Colonel Emsworth is within his right. On the other hand, he should recognize that your action is prompted entirely by solicitude for his son. I venture to hope that if I were allowed to have five minutes' conversation with Colonel Emsworth, I could certainly alter his view of the matter. What the devil are you waiting for, Ralph? Ring the police, I say. Going, sir. Nothing of the sort. Any police interference would bring about the very catastrophe you're dreading. Stand away from that door, sir. Colonel Emsworth, on this page of my notebook, I am writing just one word. Here you are, sir. Pray read it, and you will know what has brought us here. What? How? How did you know this? It is my business to know things. That is my trade. Then you forced my hand. If you wish to see Godfrey, you shall. But this is your doing, not mine. Mr. Holmes, what does this mean? You shall soon see, Mr. Dodd. Ralph. Sir? Go down to the garden house and tell Mr. Godfrey and Mr. Kent that in five minutes we shall be with them. Very good, sir. Very good. But this is very sudden, Colonel Emsworth. This will disarrange all our plans. I can't help it, Kent. Our hands have been forced. Can Mr. Godfrey see us now? Yes, he's waiting inside. Follow me, gentlemen. Godfrey, old man. Don't touch me, Jimmy. Don't come near. Yes, you may well stare. I don't quite look smart enough for B Squadron now, do I? What's happened? Those white patches on your skin. That's why I don't court visitors. But you seem to have me at a disadvantage. Why? I came down to see if all was well with you. That night you looked into my window. Uh, old Ralph told me you were there. I, I, I couldn't resist taking a peep. After you ran away, I couldn't let the matter rest. I asked Mr. Sherlock Holmes here to help. Oh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, eh? Well, Mr. Holmes, you may as well hear my story, too. If you please, Mr. Emsworth. It won't take long to tell. Uh, you remember, Jimmy, that morning fight outside Pretoria on the Eastern Railway line? You heard I was hit? Yes, I heard about it. But I never got particulars. Three of us got separated from the rest. Aldi Simpson, Henderson and I. The other two were killed. I got a bullet through my shoulder. I stuck on my horse, though, and he galloped several miles with me before I must have rolled off in a faint. When I came to, it was night. It was deadly cold. You remember that, that kind of numb cold that used to come in the evening? I do. It's deadly. Uh, there was a building nearby. I knew my only hope was to reach it. I have a dim memory of staggering there. The, and there was a, a large room with many beds in it. I just fell onto one of them and passed out. Lucky for you. Ha! <laughs> was it? When I woke in the morning, 
It was as though I'd passed from a world of sanity into a nightmare. Standing in front of me was a dwarf-like man with a huge bulbous head. He was jabbering in Dutch and waving his hands. They were like horrible brown sponges. Good Lord. There were others behind him watching him here. And as I looked at them, I realized that not one of them was a normal human being. Everyone was twisted or swollen or disfigured in some way. And they were laughing at me. God, I, I can hear them now. Well, the, then that, that little beast laid his horrible deformed hands on me and began pulling me off the bed. My wound was bleeding, but he went on. He was as strong as a bull. I don't know what he was going to do, but an elderly man suddenly came in and shouted an order in Dutch, and the little monster moved away. This is fantastic. It's only too true. Well, the elderly man spoke to me in English. I'm a doctor, he said. That shoulder of yours wants fixing up quickly, but man alive, do you know where you are? A hospital, I said. Yes, he said. The leper hospital. You're lying in a leper's bed. My God. Now you have the truth, Mr. Dodd. Thanks to the British advance, I was in the general hospital at Pretoria within a week. Apart from my shoulder, I seem to be all right. It wasn't until they got me home and I came here that these terrible signs began to appear on my face. I knew then that I hadn't escaped. What was I to do, Mr. Dodd? We had two servants we could trust completely. There was this house where he could live. Uh, Mr. Kent here, he's a surgeon, was prepared to stay and care for him in secret. Yes, but why? Surely a hospital... Oh, don't you see? It would have meant segregation for the rest of his life. To live forever amongst strangers without any hope of release... Even in these quiet parts, if one word had got out, he would have been dragged away to that. Even you had to be kept in the dark, Jimmy. But what I don't understand, Father, is why you've relented now. It was Mr. Sherlock Holmes who forced my hand with this scrap of paper. He wrote one word on it. Leprosy. After that, I realized that if he knew so much, it was safer that he should know it all. So it was. And who knows but good may come of it. How? I understand that only you, Mr. Kent, have attended the patient. May I ask, sir, if you are an authority on such tropical or semi-tropical complaints? I have the ordinary knowledge of the educated medical man. I have no doubt, sir, that you are fully competent. But I'm sure you will agree that in such a case, a second opinion is valuable. It would have meant pressure being put on us to segregate him. I foresaw this situation, and I brought with us a friend whose discretion may be absolutely trusted. I was able once to do him a professional service, and he is ready to advise as a friend rather than as a specialist. His name is Sir James Saunders. Sir James? He is at present in the carriage outside the door. Then I should be proud, Mr. Holmes. Good. I will ask him to step this way. And meanwhile, Colonel Emsworth, we may perhaps assemble in your study. My invariable process starts upon the supposition... That when you have eliminated all that which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Now, as this case was first presented to me, there were three possible explanations of the seclusion or incarceration of this gentleman in an outhouse of his father's mansion. 
There was the possibility that he was in hiding for a crime, or that he was mad and they wished to avoid an asylum, or that he had some disease which caused his segregation. I could think of no other adequate explanations. The criminal solution would not bear inspection. No unsolved crime had been reported from this district. If it were some crime not yet discovered, then clearly it would be to the family's interest to send the delinquent abroad rather than keep him concealed at home. Insanity was more plausible. Mm, what's that? The presence of the second person in the outhouse suggested a keeper. The fact that he locked the door when he came out strengthened the supposition. On the other hand, this constraint could not be severe, or the young man could not have got loose to have a look at his friend. You will remember, Mr. Dodd, that I felt round for points. Such as asking me about the paper Mr. Kent had been reading. You were being optimistic there, Mr. Holmes. Had it been a medical paper, it would have helped me. It is not illegal to keep a lunatic upon private premises so long as there is a qualified person in attendance and the authorities have been notified. Then why all this desperate desire for secrecy? So you had no theory to fit the facts again. There remained the third possibility. Rare and unlikely as it was, everything seemed to fit into it. Leprosy is not uncommon in South Africa. Bleaching of the skin is a common result of the disease. By some extraordinary chance, this youth might have contracted it. His people would be placed in a very dreadful position since they would desire to save him from segregation. Great secrecy would be needed, but he could be allowed some freedom after dark. A devoted medical man, if sufficiently paid, would easily be found to take care of it. You thought this case was the strongest of the three, in fact. So strong that I determined to act as if it were actually proved. When I arrived here, I noticed that the gloves worn by Ralph, who carried the meals, were strongly impregnated with disinfectant. My last doubts were removed. A single word showed you, sir, that your secret was discovered. Yes, yes, I see it now. But tell me, sir, why did you write it down instead of saying it? That was to prove to you that my discretion was to be trusted. I thought as much. Ah, here is Sir James. Well, sir, let us know the worst. It is often my lot to bring ill tidings and seldom good. This occasion is the more welcome, Colonel Emsworth. It is not leprosy. Not? What is it then, Sir James? A well-marked case of pseudo-leprosy, ichthyosis. It's a scale-like affection of the skin, unsightly, obstinate, but possibly curable... And certainly non-infective. Then heaven be thanked. Uh, but surely if he got it from contact with those leper fellows... No, not from them. A coincidence. Remarkable, but a coincidence. Coincidence, my dear Sir James? Are we assured that the apprehension from which this young man has suffered since his terrible experience may not have produced a physical effect simulating that which it fears? May there not be subtle forces at work of which we know very, very little. That was The Blanched Soldier by Michael Hardwick, based on the short story by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes was played by Carlton Hobbs, and production for the BBC was by Frederick Bradman. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. This time a bride-to-be, a corpse in a plush bungalow, and a southern drawl behind a gun all had one thing in common. They moved through the same deep shadow. It happened like this. 
from the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Deep Shadow. Hello. Uh, Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. This is Marlowe. Oh, my name is Harvey Kettering. And I'm to be married in four hours at nine sharp. Oh, congratulations. I hope you'll be very happy. But my bride is gone. Disappeared. I need your help. Now, look, if you've been left waiting at the altar, I can't... No, 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 it's nothing like that. She's in, she's in trouble, Mr. Marlowe, I'm sure. Oh? Shirley loves me. Now, I'll pay anything you say. Two hundred, three hundred, anything. Only get out here fast, please. Now, wait a minute. Where is here? 3840 Sunswept Drive. It's in Studio City, just across the hills mm. from Hollywood. 38 Take points. Laurel Canyon. Well, now, look, Mr. Kettering, oh, Please, I... Mr. Marlowe, please. Okay, okay. All right, Mr. Kettering, I'll see you. The address he gave me turned out to be a healthy chunk of old Spain. A whitewashed house that spread out for at least a hundred yards under a pink-tiled roof. As admitted by a butler with owl eyes, no shoulders, and a small bay window, and we... Played followed the leader over cool marble ankle-deep Persian rug and inlaid Philippine mahogany. Finally, I was ushered into the ballroom, which was big enough for a highlight match. It was decked out for a wedding from the champagne buckets and dead over ice lobsters to a pink rose-covered canopy at the center. And in the middle of it all, chained smoking while he worried, was my new client, Harvey Kittering. Well, Mr. Marlowe, I'm afraid there isn't a moment to lose, so I'd better tell you what I know quickly. Uh, but uh, let's step outside on the patio. All right, Mr. Kittering. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, last night, Shirley and I What's went to the... What's her full name, Mr. Kennery? Doyle, Shirley oh. Doyle. Oh, yes, here. Uh, here's a snapshot of her. Mm -hmm. She's 25, blonde, and as you can see, Mr. Marlowe, very attractive. You're so right. You started to tell me about last night. Oh, yes. Uh, we were out together at a nightclub, the Blue Chip. On Ventura Boulevard? Oh, yes. Now, we'd never been there before, yet I think that's where it started. What do you mean, started? Well, when we were leaving the place about midnight, I called a cab... I was just giving the driver Shirley's home address, the Moorpark Court Apartments, when suddenly she told me to get in and told the driver to start at once. You know why? No, I thought perhaps she'd, she'd seen somebody coming from the club. But when I asked her about it, she said it was just her nerves, since tomorrow was her wedding day. I see. Then today she was supposed to call, but she didn't. At two, I called her. Talked to her? No, she was gone. Mm. But I talked to the day maid. She said when she arrived, she brought in a note that had been left outside Shirley's door. There's one of those leave-a-message pads in a box on her porch rail. Mm -hmm. She said it seemed to upset Shirley terribly. M Mr. Marlowe, what are we going to do? Now, look, have you been over there to Shirley's place? No, I haven't. Mm. Got a key? Yes, I do. All right, Mr. Kettering, you have the key, so let's go. But uh, what shall I do about the guests? The, the Nothing right now. We may be lucky. <laughs> There are only three rooms, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, uh, what do you suggest we do? Well, first, let's look for that note. She may have left it here somewhere. Oh, you try the bedroom. I'll start with the wastebasket. Full of papers. All right. Just as you say, Mr. Marlowe. Yeah, sure. Uh, Endicott Clinic. 321 North Rossmore. Say, uh, Kettering, what does Shirley do for a living? Oh, she was a receptionist, Mr. Marlowe, at a medical clinic on Rossmore. Well, that figures. 
Miss Marlowe. What? Miss Marlowe, I found it. The, the note the maid spoke of, it's the same paper written with a soft pencil like the one attached to that box outside. It was on her dresser. Now give it here. Let's see it. Dear Shirley Doyle, guess who I ran into last night? Francis Dragato. Suggest you meet me at the corner of Ventura and Woodsett Boulevard at 10.30. Not signed, huh? Is Francis spelled with an E? Yeah, yeah, the girl's name. I've never heard Shirley mention any Francis Dragato. Mm. And a public street corner wouldn't be much of a place to check five hours after people met, would it, Mr. Marlowe? No, I suppose not. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, what, what have you got? What is it? Hmm? Oh, a page torn out of the classified directory, a listing of theatrical agencies. Line through by pencil, made down to C. Well, the last one crossed out is Capital Artist. Yeah, that makes Drake Talent Agency next. Well, she never had anything to do with show business, Mr. Marlowe. What do you think it means? I don't know. Uh, you going to check with the Drake Agency? No, my first stop's going to be where you were last night, the blue chip. I know the owner, Eddie Shaft, and Eddie knows an awful lot, including things that, uh, aren't always exactly his business. Maybe able to help us if he wants to. Uh, sh shall I come along, Mr. Marlowe? No, no, you go home, Kettering. I'll try to deliver your bride before nine. All right. Uh, oh, shall I pay you now? I will let it go, C.O.D. <laughs> I have the slightest idea what I'm going to run into. The snapshot of Shirley Doyle my client had given me reminded me of the kid you went to school with. You know, she had the kind of well-scrubbed look you knew was quick to smile, but I knew that she could be in a lot of trouble if she was tied in at all with the dapper Eddie Shaft. After dark, the blue chip was one of those cozy, soft lights melting on thick drapes kind of places. It made you forget all about the stiff prices for limp food. But now, at a little better than five in the afternoon, under wide-eyed, unblinking work lights, that all the cushion come hither of a union hall. In one corner, a skinny musician with a golf ball complexion was working over a clarinet. While in the middle of a dance floor with no more diameter than the hole in a candy lifesaver, a girl was standing on a piano stool. She was smoking and looking straight ahead at nothing. A red shingled hair, promise of a nose and plunged neckline, tagged her as the singer on the posters outside. One Miss Corky Netherlands. The place is closed, soldier. Glad you told me. Never would have known. Never mind the routine, soldier. Just come to the point. What do you want? Uh, just a few words with the boss. Eddie around? No. No, he's not. Uh-huh. How about his bungalow in Coldwater Canyon? You mean it hasn't hit the papers yet? What's the connection between Eddie and the headlines? Soldier, Eddie was stabbed to death sometime this morning. You've got to be kidding. Sometime between 9 and 11, the cops say. Well... Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Corky. You have any idea who did it? No, except that maybe it was a dame. Any description on it? The law isn't gabby about things, soldier, believe me. If you don't, try Eddie's bungalow yourself and find out. Up, will you? Oh, yeah, and Mooney, don't forget to have that fingerprint crew go over his other car on that back porch rail. Okay, Lieutenant. Hey, can they start the body downtown now? Yeah, I guess so. We're not going to get any smarter staring at Hiya, Matthews. Huh? Oh, hello, Phil. What brings you up here? Curiosity. I was in the neighborhood. What's the setup? I hear it's supposed to be a woman. Could be. 
Where do you hear this? Singer over at the Blue Chip, Corky Netherlands. Oh, her. Yeah, well, she's clear. She yeah. was home right up until noon, and she can prove it. Mm. This happened a little before noon, an hour or so. But it was a woman, all right. What makes you so sure? Oh, Phil, fresh lipstick on a glass and a cigarette, a kitchen knife for a murder weapon, etc. No. Also, some long-nosed neighbor saw a girl. Said she was young, maybe blonde. She wasn't sure. Saw her run out of here a little after 11 this morning. Mm-hmm. All this uh, adds up to somebody in particular, huh? Well, it should, Phil. Norma Mayetta. Who? She was... Norma Mayetta is her name. She oh, was Eddie's yeah, dearest, yeah. you see. It should add, but it doesn't. She left town last night for Chicago on the 1 a.m. plane. We checked it. Of course, Eddie Shaft went with a lot of girls. Uh, excuse me, That's all right. We uh, just got hold of that night cashier over at the Blue Chip. Yeah, what do you say, Money? Shaft took 50,000 bucks in small bills out of the office safe last night. Oh, what time? About 2 a.m. Had it in a large manila envelope. Yeah, nothing even close to a manila envelope's turned up here, has it? No, Lieutenant, but that gives us another angle to shoot at. All right, Mooney, pass the word to the boys. Okay, Lieutenant. Look, Mono, just a passing thought. All right. You sure you're just curious? You sure you don't want to play one and one makes two with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, Lieutenant. Well, look, I'll see you. I'll give you a call. Oh, no. I... huh? Wait a minute. Yeah? Look, I know all about your professional ethics, you know, relations between client and private detective. Yeah. We won't go into that. We're going to go into something else very briefly, Phil. You know, the law on many points is quite clear, Marlowe. Clear like what, Matthews? Clear like the status of an accessory before or after the fact in a murder case. And like aiding and abetting a criminal. Like a lot of things you know all about, Phil. Keep them in mind, will you? Okay, Matthews, yeah, I'll see you. Since the lieutenant hadn't mentioned Francis Dragato, I didn't see why I should. All of which made it a good time for me to cross my fingers and check the name which had been on deck on the list in Shirley's apartment. The Drake Talent Agency. The place which was on Sunset Strip was strictly coy colonial from a miniature Mount Vernon front to an oversized mirror-polished brass knocker on the front door that said my tie was crooked. And I was sure that the gentleman who answered the door noticed it. It was impeccable. In cocoa brown gabardine, white high at the throat tab shirt, and also cocoa brown silk tie. And at the bottom, there were thick-soled cordovans with leather laces. At the top, a crew cut over jet black horn rims. He took the glasses off, and long, soft fingers toyed with one stem while he talked. Yes, sir? Now, my name is Philip Marlowe. I'd like to talk to Mr. Drake. I'm Mr. Drake. Oh? What was it you wanted, Mr. Marlowe? Well, I'm not exactly sure. You see, I, uh... Hey, Drake, this picture here is Corky Netherlands, right? The third one over, yes. Uh, she's a client of ours. But this picture isn't what you came to talk about, is it, Mr. Marlowe? What's her home address? I beg your pardon. Come on, quick. It's important. And confidential. This isn't a lonely Skip heart spot, it. Mr. Marlowe. I was playing a long shot when I knocked on your door, Drake, but now it's paid off, so tell me. Any stranger called for Corky's address today? I don't know, and the secretary's already left. Look here, Mr. Marlowe. What's this all about? Murder, Mr. Drake. Murder? A messy one. Now, do you give me the address, or do I start after it myself? Well, I, I, I don't know. Come on, answer up, Drake. The Towers, an apartment hotel on Ivar. Now, one last thing. Don't call her after I leave unless you want to be up to your hand-stitched lapels and cops. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, you might think that after several years with Gracie Ellen, George Burns had seen everything, done everything, been everything. But this Wednesday night... You'll find George in a brand new role, that of a Floradora girl, with costume and complications by Gracie Ellen. 
The Burns and Allen Show is heard every Wednesday on most of these same CBS stations, along with the Bing Crosby Show and the Groucho Marx program. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Deep Shadow. I left the glossy Mr. Drake in his glossy little agency with his mouth hanging open and drove down to Hollywood Boulevard to Ivar and from there up the hill to a five-story air-conditioned monolith with Venetian blinds called the Towers, which offered about as much sanctuary as the Yankee Stadium. I parked heading downhill and walked in across the buzzing green and silver lobby draped with pale pink curtains and blasé women to the elevator and rode up to the third floor. Corky Netherland's apartment was the fourth down the hall to the right and quiet but the door was ajar two inches. So I rapped hard enough to swing it all the way open. The answer sounded like a cry for help from the bottom of a well. When it came again, I went in, and it took me a few seconds to realize that the noise was coming from a closet. And when I got it open, Corky Netherlands reeled out, looking like she'd been she through was, a threshing machine. She was, she was after the money. Who was after she what money, Corky? Who? Some dame. I didn't know her, but she... There she is. Shirley! Miss Doyle, wait a minute! It was Shirley Doyle. She'd been hiding inside near the door. She grabbed a handy oversized ashtray and let it fly at us and beat it. I made it to the hall just as the elevator door closed, so I took the stairs and raced it down to the lobby. I got out on the street in time to see Shirley with a large manila envelope in one hand pile into a sleek new Hudson and take off. I ran to my car to follow her, but that was as far as I got. I was stopped cold by a nasty little gut in the hands of a southern accent behind a pair of strictly Hollywood dark glasses. Be a good boy, honey, and hold it. Now, look, like sister, that. who do you think you are? Now, what are you... I'll ask the questions if you don't mind. Why are you in such a fuss over the girl who just made off? I was trying to get her out of a jam, believe it or not. Well, now, isn't that the darndest coincidence you ever saw? So am I. Only you want to catch her, and I want her to get away. But I guess that's life, isn't it, honey? Yeah, in the raw, in the raw. You said it. We got big business together, her and me. And it sure don't include you. Uh, just a minute. This adds like you could be Francis Dragato. Francis who? Uh, Dragato. Me? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, that name's much too fancy for the likes of me, honey. I reckon we can break it up now. So why don't you just give me the keys there in your hand? My keys? Come on, give. Yeah, well... That's a oh. good boy. Now, don't try anything silly. And, uh, don't fret, honey. I'll leave your car two or three blocks down the street here. Look, maybe you ought to go back upstairs and... Console little sugar child up there. Maybe take her to a movie or something. You know, to cool her off. Well, that's a nice, fresh thought. I'm loaded with yeah, it. Yeah, you're Try loaded. me again sometime. So long. Dames. <clears throat> Someday I'm going to get a case where there's no dames connected. Either directly or indirectly. Parking my car three blocks away, that's fine, fine. Just fine. Hey, hey, going up. Flower, please, sir. Three. Did you catch her, Marlo? Did you get her? No, no, she got away. Which leaves you and me, Corky, to make cozy conversation about that mention of dough you slipped on when I let you out of the closet. Come on back in the room, honey. What money? Now, look, you worked for Eddie Shaft as a singer in his club, but what else was Eddie to you beside boss? Just a minute. I don't see what business that is of yours. It's easy, it's easy. He was murdered. The cops have already talked to me, soldier. I'm clean. Those negotiations can be reopened at any time. For one thing, you forgot to tell them anything about dough, and yet they're very interested in 50,000 missing bucks. 
That 50 grand was right here in the apartment, wasn't it? Well, you can't blame a girl for trying, Marlon. No, not unless she tries too hard. Now, what does the name Francis Tregato mean to you? Francis Tregato? Okay, skip it, skip it. Where'd you get the dough? Eddie gave it to me to keep for him. Why you? I thought Norma Maeda had the inside track with Eddie. Not after he fell in love with me. Oh, no, no, that's not good enough, baby. There was a double cross. Where was it? Now, look, Corky, you might as well be smart about it, huh? All right, I didn't kill him. But if you can get that dough back for me, I'll split it with you. Right down the middle. I'm listening. That club of his is dying on its feet. The blue chip's going broke. Eddie and Norma Maeda raised $50,000 to keep it going. But Eddie decided to get out for Monday. He got rid of Norma by sending her to Chicago in a trumped-up deal. And he put all that cash in one lump and gave it to me to hold. We were going to run out together. Only somebody got to him, nailed him, and that left you holding the bag with 50 grand in it. That's nice. Except then a girl who belongs in this mess like a great-grandmother belongs in a high hurdle race stepped in and took it away from you. With the help of a southern accent and dark glasses. Who are you calling? A friend of mine at Homicide. Why, you... Sit t- down and shut up. So far you've been lucky, Corky. Don't push it. Don Matthews, Homicide. Marlowe Matthews, listen, on that Eddie Shaft case. Yeah, what about it? I got a couple of things you might be of help to you. Now, look, item one. That missing 50 grand is being sought after by a southern accent and dark glasses. A woman? Yeah, and she pulled a gun on me. Item two. The name Francis Dragato. It ties in. D-R-A-G-O-T-T-O. Ring any bells? Dragato. That's what I said. Yeah, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, but it's nothing, Marlowe. It's ancient history. Dragato, I know, was a third-rate burglar shot and killed resisting arrest down the Sandbar District about five years ago, way back when I was a prowl car sergeant. Look, what about this... Tell me, Dragato have a wife? No, no, I think there was a daughter around. Name Francis? I don't remember that good, Marlowe. Look, what is this Dragato business, anyway? Well, so far, it's a hunch. That's what I thought. Climb off of it and get down to facts, will you? Who's the dame after that Eddie Shaft money? Where did you run into her? I lost her on Ivar. That's not what I asked you, I know that's not what you asked, but anything else would be a breach of my client's confidence. All right, look, Marlowe, I'm real serious. I'm going to give you just one hour to notify your client and get down here and spill. After that, I'm putting out a call to have you picked up for withholding evidence. Matthews ain't kidding this time. You, uh, didn't say goodbye. That's quite a tightrope you walk, Marlowe. Yeah, sometimes. Mm -hmm. You're good. And I'm a girl of my word. You get that money back for me and it's 50-50. You're my only chance. Don't kid no kidder, baby. You're a girl of two words. Double and cross. Good night, Corky. I found my car all right, a half a block from Sunset Boulevard. It took 20 minutes to get from there to the Sandbar District. It was downhill all the way. It was a neighborhood squeezed and cramped in by a solid wall of massive factories and as fested as the bottom of a bent garbage can. At the corner of River Street and 3rd, I found the house. Three sagging, rotten stories of tenement that squatted in the eternal shadow of a huge gas tank like a sick, dirty old man. The proud, gleaming giant of City Hall was only seven blocks away. I just as well have been 70 miles. I went up to the door and knocked, and finally it inched open, just far enough for a face the color of dishwater to peek out. She hissed at me for a minute through the gap where her front teeth should have been, and then told me she was Ma Hargis, the manager, motioned me inside. The living room looked like something swept out the back door of a down-at-the-heel museum. Oh, you want to know about the Dragotas, huh? Yeah, they lived here, didn't they? Maybe, maybe not. Cops got the old man about five years ago? It's possible. Yeah. 
What became of his daughter? Where's Francis Dragato? Why? What are you being so cagey about, Ma? Because a bird that asks questions has got an angle, always. <laughs> and the one who knows the answer has got a price, huh? Always. Hmm. Okay, how far will a couple of bucks go? From here to the door. Two bucks won't even buy a buzz on beer these days. All right, we'll make it five. Here. Oh, that's better. <coughs> well, Dirk Gregoto and his kid Francis had the second floor here for 15 years. His wife died of TB first year they was here. Oh, she was a smart one, that Francis. Had a hit on her. Mm. She always said she was going to get off the sandbar someday and be somebody. <laughs> oh, I told her she'd never make it. It's too far, mister. Kids down here get dirty. And it's the kind of dirt you can't wipe off. It gets inside of mine. No. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, what happened to her? I don't know. When her old man got it, she left and I never seen her again. Not to this day. Probably left town and wound up working the gin mills in some other place. Is that they the five bucks do. worth? Huh? Well, <laughs> you bought sight unseen, sonny. Tell me, you got a picture of her? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I have. Good. She was uh, 17 at the time. It's kind of fuzzy, but uh, you can see hey, she Hey, wait a minute, Ma. Are you sure this is Francis Dragato? Say, she lived in this dump for 15 years, Autumn. Sure, I know. She looks like somebody else. Girl who was supposed to get married tonight. I got another picture of Francis here someplace. Wait a minute, a better one. Let me see now. Here, here it is. This was took down on Oliveira Street, one of them stands. Oh, that's her best friend there with her, Norma Maeta. Norma Maeta. <laughs> Norma was a tough little egg. Folks drank all the time and let Norma run wild. Oh, fine. Mm. Francis Dragato and Norma Maeta are friends. I'll say. Them two was quite a team. No bad. I always wanted to do something for them girls, but what can you ever do in a hole like this for anybody? You've just done it, Ma. Here's five more. Buy yourself another light bulb. Throw a party with the change. So long. The eyes of one young woman and the chin and mouth of another, side by side, smiling into a camera, had cleared up a lot of questions. But there was one more that needed an answer fast. I called Matthews from the first phone booth I came to, brought him up to date in a hurry, and then asked him to check Norma Maeda's place, and if that was blank, to meet me at the Moore Park Court Apartments which was the only other likely place I could think of. I crowded traffic lights all the way out, but he and Sergeant Mooney got there almost as soon as I did. And I led them back to Francis Tregato's well-lit cottage, the one she'd taken in her new name, Shirley Doyle. Mooney went to cover the back while Matthews and I moved in up front. Your hunches are paying off tonight, Marlowe. Oh, yeah, they're in here all right. Yeah, come on over this way. The window's open. We can catch a little conversation first, you know. It might help. Yeah, if you keep quiet, we can. I'm due in Chicago. Thanks for your help. Francis, dear. Yeah. I had to get this money. Now more than ever. You've got it, Norma, for goodbye. Now that stuffed shirt you're going to marry, you'll never know where you really came from or who you really are. Did you get that? Oh, and one more thing, dear, before I go. Yeah? I killed Eddie Shaft this morning. You what? Heard nothing of you? No, 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 hold on. When he put me on the plane for Chicago, I figured something was fishy, so I got off and I came back. And I found out he was selling me short for that little jerk, Corky Netherlands. We had an argument. 
I killed him. Well, of all the Then dumb... I remembered seeing you leave the blue chip last night. I needed someone like you to get the money for me, Francis. Yeah, there's your tie-in. I couldn't afford to be seen here in L.A. when I was supposed to be in Chicago. Not with a murder on my neck. But you were seen by that man who chased me at the hotel. Who, Marlowe? <laughs> He's still looking for a southern drawl and dark glasses. You're the only one who knows the truth, and That's you're in it with thinks. me now. I'm not going to let you involve me in a murder, Norma. Getting that money was one thing, but I'm not going to be mixed up in a killing. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to tell the whole thing. You're a fool, Francis. I got a good alibi for one murder. It'll work for two. Let's go, Matthews. Yeah, you're fast. Come on. stop me now, Francis. Oh, no. Nobody is. And who's that? All right, hold it, girls. We're police. You're not taking me! I'm back, Matthews. Yeah. Morning, stopper! Hey, stop! Drop it, lady. No! Come on, Marlowe. I, I think she's dead, Lieutenant. She wouldn't stop. She was shooting at me, but she's a woman. All right, Mooney. That gun in her hand, she was a killer and nothing more. Yeah, I suppose she was. If you asked that kid inside, she could tell you what made her that way. Oh, well, let's get out of here, Matthews. <laughs> Thank you enough, Mr. Marlowe, for bringing Shirley, uh, that is Francis, back to me safely. Oh, believe me, Mr. Kettering, it was a real pleasure. And uh, you, Lieutenant Matthews, for your cooperation on withholding the publicity aspects of this horrible no, thing. Oh, no, it's okay, Mr. Kettering. Glad to help out. We're going to be married, you know, right away. Shirley told me the story and wanted to postpone the wedding, but I wouldn't hear of it. Good. After all, I'm not marrying her for the past. I'm marrying her for the future. Yeah. Best wishes, Mr. Kettering. Yeah. Maybe tomorrow when Shirley's calmed down... Give her my congratulations, will you? Well, after a long cup of coffee and a lot of conversation about people with Matthews, I finally got in my car and headed home to my apartment on Franklin Avenue. Which isn't the best street in town, but it is lined with palm trees instead of garbage cans. And the sun hits it all day long. Yeah, but that reminded me again of River Street, the deep perpetual shadow that hangs over it. A dirty shadow that Mahogas said could never be rubbed off. A shadow that spawns the Norma Maedas of the world. I was still thinking about it while I got ready for bed. I knew Ma wasn't 100% right. I'd seen the exception of the rule. But she was 99% right. Just enough to disturb my sleep. Oh, well. One guy can't change things. Can he? Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Gerald Moore may currently be seen starring in Republic's The Blonde Bandit. Featured in tonight's cast were Lillian Bayef, Joan Banks, Verna Felton, Yvonne Patey, Jeff Corey, Jack Crucian, and Tom Holland. Detective Lieutenant Matthews is played by Larry Dobkin. 
The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arunt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... This time I started with a Romanian from left field, got misled in the Philippine jungles, chased an English accent clear to Venice, and wound up at a Shinto shrine with a friend from Siam. All without ever leaving Los Angeles. Dr. Christian, the kindly physician of River's End, has a most unusual case placed in his hands this Wednesday night on CBS. His patient, a 16-year-old girl who's in love with an older man, and the man, Dr. Christian himself. CBS cordially invites you to hear this Dr. Christian story, The Rainbow Trail, on most of these same CBS stations this Wednesday night. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's it for Case Closed this week. You can find more from Holmes and Marlowe at relicradio.com. Lots available there. Past episodes of Case Closed, all the other podcasts, our shoutcast stream, lots to listen to, all for free, thanks to your support. Remember, donate.relicradio.com if you'd like to help out. We've got some downloadable sets for certain donation amounts, though anything is always helpful and appreciated. Thanks again to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me this week. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed. Thank you.